The word halcyon comes from an ancient legend that a bird, a bird of that name, which we would call a kingfisher, was able to charm the wind and the waves at the winter solstice. The sea was then calm enough for the bird's nest to float upon the water. Hence, our association of calmness with the phrase halcyon days. And that phrase originally referred to the 14 days around the time of the solstice. Well, it's a nice story, but we know that actually kingfishers nest in holes in riverbanks. Well, for our disciples this morning, Cleopas and his unnamed companion, and some sources say that perhaps it was his wife, but I actually think that's probably unlikely. But together, they're on the road some seven miles from Jerusalem en route to Emmaus. And for them, life has been far from calm and still. Imagine their emotions, turmoil, anger, dejection, confusion, fear, disappointment, feeling lost, bewildered, bereft, helpless, and left alone. These are all words that we might associate with bereavement in some form or other. And whilst we may have moved on from our Easter celebrations and the great victory that we celebrated at Easter on Easter Sunday, it's actually good to reflect back. What was that first Easter morning like? What was it like for those first disciples, for Cleopas and his friend in our passage? What about the significance of the women's discovery of the empty tomb? Well, that still probably had to sink in. It had only been a few hours. Nothing surely made sense. And then when this stranger joins them, and he says, what are you discussing with each other? Their response is one of surprise. Doesn't, doesn't this stranger know what's been going on? But they don't really know themselves. They haven't quite got it. They haven't got it, as Ian said at eight o'clock, that Jesus has risen. They're locked in grief and bewilderment. They can't really understand what has happened. Not yet. The stranger persists. He says, what things? And of course, we know who that stranger is. Luke is, of course, a masterful storyteller. And here we have a brilliant example of double irony, where the supposedly informed disciples tell the uninformed stranger of all that's happened. They tell, the, tell him of Jesus, the prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all people, and how he was handed over by the priests and leaders to be condemned to death and crucified. This is then followed by the supposedly uninformed stranger enlightening the informed disciples. He tells them how foolish they've been and how slow of heart they are 
What a good phrase that is, slow of heart, to describe our dullness, our weakness and our inability to understand the things that have happened. So then the stranger, beginning with Moses and the prophets, interprets to Cleopas and his friend all things that are known about Jesus from the scriptures. If only we had an account of that conversation, we'd been able to eavesdrop on what was said. And if we could, and we can only imagine what, what was said there, I'm sure many of the arguments and theological knots that we've since tied ourselves up in might have been avoided. He explains the Old Testament to him. We can only understand fully the New Testament in light of the Old. The Old Testament we could describe as perhaps the longest prologue in history to any story. But that section of our Bibles is so vital, so essential to our understanding and our recognition of the full significance of Jesus the Messiah. It's also essential, the whole book, to our moments of knowing, those special moments of knowing Christ's presence with us, his presence beside us and his presence within us. Well, Ian has already presented this year one sermon on this passage at our Easter praise on the evening service on Easter Sunday. And so I know whatever I try and say is going to be but a pale reflection. But what really struck me about what Ian said, and perhaps you were there, was that Cleopas and his companion were simply not ready or in the right place to recognize Jesus. In other words, their heads and their minds and their thoughts were simply all over the place. Perhaps back still with the events of those recent days. And that's surely no surprise, given all that had happened. They'd moved from the triumphant procession of Palm Sunday and all the way down to the betrayal and the horror of Good Friday. Good Friday, where they'd witnessed the worst that humankind is capable of, and all that is done to Jesus. Crucifixion was the cruelest, slowest, and most barbaric death imaginable, one of gradual suffocation and dislocation as the body attempts to draw itself upwards for breath and all that on top of horrendous torture and beating, both physical torture and bodily abuse, but also emotional. Jesus was betrayed and deserted. He was rejected, mocked, and ridiculed. Perhaps there was a sense of guilt there also for those disciples, as well as their sense of abandonment which we see perhaps reflected as the sky darkened on that Good Friday. All their hopes had died 
with the broken, abandoned cross, body on the cross. And that darkness, it would seem, is still shrouding their hearts. Yet, as we know, hope has broken out from the bonds of death, defeating death once and for all. But for now, Cleopas and his companion are still stuck in that sort of terrible, dark place. And somehow they can't quite let go. They can't quite believe what's happened. Their faith isn't strong enough. All they can see is hopelessness. It's all been for nothing. Jesus wasn't, perhaps, after all, all he claimed to be. And that's why they've turned back to go home to Emmaus. Perhaps they just want to forget. But also, I think they need to talk about it. Because they, they just say everything that's happened to this stranger. They don't know who he is. Because as Luke records, they were kept from recognizing him, kept from recognizing Jesus. As Ian has also said, and here we recognize from our experiences, that the time isn't always right to see what is perhaps plain before us. They were simply not in the right place either emotionally or psychologically. They couldn't take in what the women had said about the empty tomb. We all know that there's a time and a place to say certain things. For example, to tell somebody who has been newly bereaved that time heals is often the most useless and unhelpful thing to say. It's only as that person begins to move forwards that they can perhaps share those thoughts. And I remember that phrase, time heals, being said to me many years ago now when somebody, a teacher, somebody who had accepted me as me and not compared me to my sister, died as a result of a road accident. And it's strange what you remember about such times, and I recall that the daffodils had been late that year, and that association, for some reason, is still strong. I'm really not sure the phrase, time heals, is of any real point. It's true time changes things, but of course it's Jesus who heals. And that's what our disciples, I believe, discovered. Three days is both a very long and a short time of any, in any journey of loss or bereavement. Time hangs heavy. The hours blur into one. And ordinary things seem to have no purpose anymore. A shock takes its inevitable course. And even if loss is expected, as it was for us ten years ago, when my grandmother who I'd spent most of my early life, just quietly slipped away. It's all part of our humanness, created as we are with the ability to feel emotional pain, 
which is often just as great as any physical pain. So I wonder how exactly those disciples did feel. And I think they needed to talk. They needed to try and make sense of things. And I think Jesus gave them that opportunity. He recognized that. He helped them to come to a place of healing. Only when they're ready, when the stranger who's asked questions, what are you discussing? Not because he needed to know the answer, but because he knew Cleopas and his friend needed to tell him. They needed to tell him everything about the missing body and the revelation of the women and of angels and this story that Jesus was somehow alive, that he has risen. It's only when the stranger accepts the invitation to stay, when Jesus has explained things to them from Scripture, that he's moved them on to a better place. Then they're ready They're ready to hear, ready to see Jesus as he is. It's only then that they begin to make sense of what's happened. The invitation is, I believe, significant because that invitation is also one made to us. It's up to us to invite Christ into our lives. The stranger had all been set to carry on his way, or so it would seem. But the two friends say, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. And so the stranger does. Always the invitation to Jesus to stay, given by us, that invitation will always be accepted. And of course, it's then that they see, as Jesus breaks the bread, as he gives thanks and gives it to them, that sudden moment of recognition. We've probably all had moments like that ourselves, those moments when we accept Jesus' invitation. Jesus has become the host Things are turned around, turned upside down. Cleopas and the friends said stay. They should have been the hosts. But no, that becomes Jesus' role. It's for Jesus to give the invitation to us. It's up to us to accept. He is the host. And that's why the breaking and sharing of bread is so central to our identity as Christians. For Christ, the true Messiah, is revealed to us through Scripture and through the breaking of bread, revealed to us through encounter, through doing, words and doing coming together. And that's what I see as lying at the heart of this story, accepting the invitation ourselves, being prepared to welcome Jesus into our lives, being ready to welcome that rare glimpse of knowing that something deep within ourselves of who he is and that he is there, here with us. That then poses the question, 
Will we, in turn, be the means of enabling others to make the invitation, to receive the invitation, and to encounter Jesus for themselves? Will we be the one who open doors to others and by our lives and example show them the way? The teacher who died now some 24 years ago was a Christian, and he showed Christian friendship, not only to me, but to so many, simply by the way he was of accepting the youngsters for who we were, however limited our talents. He was a music teacher, and my sister became a professional musician. I love music, but knew I could never play as she does. My hands were always far too small and inflexible, more accustomed to paintbrushes and pencils. I played for as long as I was able to. But what I remember most about this person was the patience, the care, and the respect he showed to everyone. And that's what we can all do. We can give to others glimpses of Jesus' love. We can do that and show that by the way we live, what we do and what we say. Cleopas and friend needed to be told they were foolish, but aren't we all? We all make mistakes. And sometimes, even when it's plain in front of us, we don't hear and we don't understand. But Jesus stayed with them until such time that they were ready. And he'll stay with us. At one of the places where I like to go and pray, I sometimes hear the call of kingfishers. But just occasionally I catch a glimpse and a flash of iridescent blue and orange as one darts out along the water's edge. And then it's gone as quickly as it came. There were once many more kingfishers along the banks of Lake Loathing where my father lived as a boy. Numbers are fewer now. But we can still liken our glimpses of knowing Jesus' risen presence to that glimpse of blue. But of course there's one difference. Whilst the numbers of kingfishers have diminished, Jesus is there all the time. He hasn't changed. The only bar on the door to our seeing is our own foolishness or unpreparedness. Or simply when life's events darken the skies so we can't see. And that will happen. We've all experienced that, I'm sure. Prayer, says our poem on the front of our service sheets, which you've, you've all got here. And please take this home with you. Prayer is... It says, prayer is like watching for the kingfisher. All you can do is be where he is likely to appear and wait. Often, nothing much happens. There is space, silence, and expectancy. No visible sign, only the knowledge that he's being there 
and may come again. Seeing or not seeing cease to matter. You have to be prepared. But sometimes when you're almost stopped expecting it, a flash of brightness gives encouragement. Change the word kingfisher for Christ. And we see that prayer becomes watching for Jesus. Where we place ourselves always at the place where he is likely to appear and wait. And of course that place is anywhere. But it's the place where we make space. And it's the place when we are ready. And it's a place where we can take in that sudden unexpected flash of brilliant light, the light of his overwhelming grace, of his healing, and that he will come, sometimes even when we've stopped expecting it, a flash of brightness, the knowledge of God's unconditional love in our hearts that gives us encouragement, hope, and joy. It's happened to me many times. What about you? And please share your experiences as an encouragement to others. But also think about, are you ready? Are you prepared? Are you prepared, perhaps, when you come up to the communion rail to receive the bread? Because that's what we're invited to do, to make in stillness a time of space when we can all receive and accept and know Jesus in our lives. For he will always come. Ours is the invitation to accept. Let us pray.